Welcome to the Clinical Education Initiative podcast, Conversations with CEI, where we feature conversations with clinical experts, their experience and insights on current health issues in the areas of HIV, primary care and prevention, sexual health, hepatitis C, and drug user health. Hello, I am Tony Urbina, the Medical Director for CEI's HIV Primary Care and Prevention Center of Excellence. I am a provider and professor who has been working in the field of HIV for over 20 years. Compared with the general population, transgender and gender diverse people are more likely to experience poor health outcomes, such as chronic health conditions, HIV, substance use, and mental illness. We know these disparities are due to structural factors such as political and economic policies and interpersonal factors such as discrimination, stigma, and violence. Transgender people also encounter barriers to accessing health insurance and health care. On this episode, our guest is one of my colleagues at Mount Sinai, Dr. Joshua Safer. Dr. Safer is the executive director of Mount Sinai Center for Transgender Medicine and Surgery and is professor of medicine at the Icon School of Medicine. He has authored or co-authored over 100 peer-reviewed publications, including the most recent reviews of transgender medicine in both the New England Journal of Medicine and the Annals of Internal Medicine. Dr. Safer's research focuses on demonstrating the health benefits of increased access to care for transgender patients. I talked with Josh today about how providers can improve access to care for transgender and gender diverse patients. What I loved about this conversation is the way in which Josh turned some of my questions on their head. Instead of discussing transgender health as a specialty, Josh talked about providing affirming care as the standard of care. He encourages all clinicians to provide gender-affirming care within their scope of practice. In this interview, we talk about some of the misconceptions that may further barriers to care and how clinicians can help improve access to care. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Welcome, Josh, and thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you, Tony. I'm pleased to be here. That's great. So to start off, I would love to know more about your background and how you got interested in transgender health. Well, I think the main thing is that it's somewhat random or serendipitous, not necessarily something that I've been planning my whole life to do. I am an endocrinologist. I started out actually wearing various hats over the years, running the thyroid program at BU, being an educator, and somewhere along the way, uh, relating to my educator hat, where I was supervising a junior person who had a focus in gender-affirming care, I inherited the patients, observed that I knew nothing because, of course, I had been taught nothing in medical school or residency or fellowship on the subject. And the short of it is that I learned is that I, I learned a little, and it struck me that we all need to know how to do this. And so I've kind of become a zealot on that subject ever since. Yeah, absolutely. I um, would agree with that, especially sharing an office with you. So just kind of continuing that conversation, um, what makes you so passionate about improving access to care for transgender patients? Well, there are a couple of pieces to that. Obviously, I, I went into medicine for purposes of helping people. And so when you are a 
doctor and you see gaps in care where you could actually do something about it, then it's a privilege or uh, lucky to be in a position to be able to be helpful. And then just more generally, uh, this is an area of medicine where there's been neglect in care, lack of attention to care, much to be learned, and there's work to be done, and we can do it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what does it mean to you to provide comprehensive care to our transgender and gender diverse patients? Well, I guess how I'm thinking about it is is from our from a program perspective, we sit in an academic medical center and part of what we do specifically at Mount Sinai is provide whatever care is required for transgender people. So there's certainly care that everyone would receive in primary care, et cetera, but then there are some specialized interventions that make sense for some transgender people, including hormones and surgeries and such. And also when we're dealing with trans people, we're dealing with people across a lifespan. So really quite a large number of specialties that need to be included in that care. Yeah. And speaking about that care, we know that unfortunately, this care isn't always accessible to our patients. What kind of barriers do you think transgender and gender diverse patients experience when they're trying to access care? What are the big ones? Well, the one that's that's reported to be number one, and certainly the one which is a focus for our program, is the lack of sufficiently knowledgeable providers. And the interesting thing about that is that across most specialties, we're not talking about anything that's particularly complicated, but it's still the case that people, so I guess some of it is perception. That is primary care providers who would take on people with very infrequently seen diagnoses, solicit appropriate specialists, somehow feel that they're not equipped to take care of uh, transgender people where the requirement is probably more straightforward. And so it's kind of both of those things then. Having a training up the medical workforce as necessary and taking the some of the existing medical workforce and giving them the comfort to feel safe in their area of expertise, caring for uh, trans folks. Yeah. So do you think everyone should be able to provide gender-affirming care? Yes. Yes. Did you, did you <laughs> on that? Yeah, absolutely. Like again, in your specialty, primary care person, a pediatrician, endocrinologist dealing yeah. with um, with um, with sex hormones. This is all within our scope of practice. It's not too complicated to extend it. There are more sophisticated things. There are some specialized surgeries that require some specialized training, but that's kind of a different story f- for the most part. Yeah. So just kind of continuing with that conversation and what are some of the common misconceptions that providers may make when starting to work with transgender and gender diverse patients? And how do you think providers can avoid these misconceptions? Well, I think there are a number of of, of misconceptions, but I think the biggest ones include the conflation of being transgender and mental health concerns. That's the biggest. And right. we're and, and we actually are, are totally complicit because the current diagnostic code in ICD 10 for being transgender is, is gender dysphoria, which yes. is just a mental health concern. There are kind of two problems with that. Number one is 
we have trans people with mental health concerns who require mental health support. And it would be easy to make the mistake of thinking, oh, here's a trans person with a mental health concern. Let's give them a gender affirming intervention like hormones or a surgery, and that will help them. And, and then you go down a path that you don't want to be going down. Or alternatively, it's taking a trans person who is looking for a gender affirming intervention, hormone surgery, whatever makes sense for that situation, and having that person need to say or demonstrate some mental health concern when maybe they don't have a mental health concern. Maybe they're just trans looking for their hormones. Right. And I know another issue that's come up also is providing gender affirming care to pediatrics and adolescents. Do you want to talk a little bit about your perspective about that? Yeah, that. thank you for bringing that up because that also fits in the category of misconceptions where for various political reasons that I frankly cannot understand. I don't understand why people would be mean to children for, for political benefit, but that seems to be a thing right now in some area, in some political circles. And then people honestly and just not knowledgeably worrying too about interventions for children. And so the specific is this, for the most part, when we are treating trans children, there is no medical intervention, certainly before puberty, there is no medicine. We're providing advice to families, things like that. Then later, as kids enter puberty, it doesn't have to be exactly at the beginning of puberty. The um, guidelines only say that you shouldn't begin interventions before puberty. We can talk about things like puberty blockers. And then as you know, for older teenagers, we can consider hormones. And we almost never do surgeries for people for kids under the age of 18. And so I see out there all this anxiety about interventions, hormones, and even worse, surgeries on kids. That is not mostly what's happening. Another a little piece of that mm-hmm. is specifically, well, the, the non-medical intervention, obviously those are, that's reversible, but even puberty blockers are completely right. reversible in and of themselves. But we get kind of a, a funny conversation among supporters and detractors and the detractors you know worry about the harms of puberty blockers but we've been using them for decades and they're reversible without harms in and of themselves but and this is a big but for the people who want to just say that in a very rigid way most of the people who are coming in for care who get on puberty blockers are transgender and progress from those puberty blockers on to sex hormones when they are old enough and so the point is that does have some implications. It is important to discuss with the patients what it is and how they want to handle interventions across the range because probably they're going to have more interventions. So that some of those things are more prudently discussed even before beginning puberty blockers. Right. What are you doing and what's your program doing at Mount Sinai to kind of address those pediatric and, and adolescent needs? Well, first of all, to address pediatric and adolescent needs, the number one thing is the number one thing in general, which is having knowledgeable providers and having the bandwidth to care for all the people who are questioning, thinking, providing support for the parents and, and their children. This is a, a family thing, of course. We're talking about children, so there are parents. And just helping people work through that And then 
having, and that includes a mental health support, it includes support, which frankly is not the big business of medicine, whether it's mental health or pediatrics, you know, these are not the money makers of medicine. And so Mm -hmm. sometimes there's a little bit of a challenge in making sure that we actually have sufficient bandwidth in these areas where there may be where reimbursements and things are too small to get us really where we need to be. Beyond that, thinking through some of the strategies. So we want to make sure, for example, that we really are thinking about fertility. If you go through some gender-affirming interventions, that's there is some risk for, to fertility. Not puberty blockers, like people are saying. That's kind of, it's interesting to me, you know, to hear all these kind of distracting comments. But certainly later when we're talking about sex hormones and even surgeries. And so preparing somebody any, and preparing them even before you begin puberty blockers is something that we want to consider. And so there's an element at Sinai too of investigating how it is that we could deliver this best and how we can do the right thing for our patients, you know, being thoughtful and taking advantage of us, taking advantage of the fact that we're really medical folks. Great. Thank you for that. Now, I guess to like maybe a philosophical question for you, Josh, when do you think people become aware of their gender? Uh, when do they become aware of their gender identity? Because yeah, it's just a you know, it's a little terminology in English. We tend to say that sex ref- refers to biology and gender is not biology, and so some of our language is a little confusing when we're talking about trans people because we talk about gender identity, which we medical folks actually are probably talking about the biology of the brain that tells you what sex you are. Social science folks. I think they're using the word gender identity, how, they, how, how the words are more typically understood, not biology, how you identify. But we medical folks use that word gender identity, but we're talking about, we're talking about biology. So, so, that, so just want to stay with that. So that just means it's hardwired. The part we're talking about, the part we're treating is when that biology is not congruent with the rest of your biology. Not that we have any way of determining that other than by asking people. So we depend on people having enough awareness of what what gender identity, what what sex actually even means, and then the language to describe where they fit. And so there's a range. Definitely, people are aware of the concept of gender identity and sex very early ages. You see, kids are very able to follow the pattern of assigning pronouns, for example, based on how they've been taught and applying it to other people. And we definitely have trans kids who come to attention at very young ages before kindergarten, quite clear whether they are, quote unquote, a boy or a girl, kind of binary, probably back then at at those younger ages. And then it runs the gamut. So I have 20 somethings who hadn't really thought about it or thought that they were different than anyone else and are only aware that they might have gender identity not aligned with their with their genitals and you know something important to think about is that cisgender people people whose gender identity is aligned with their genitals their brain biology and their and the, the visible anatomy match i don't even know if half those folks are even aware that they have gender identity so we do ask when are you aware of your gender identity <laughs> i think for the overwhelming majority of the population it's never fascinating <laughs> very interesting So Josh, with all of the work that you've been doing and your time here at Sinai, what aspirations do you have for the future of transgender medicine and healthcare? My goals, which I think are achievable, 
are mostly to integrate gender-affirming care into the system so that it's delivered just like any other medical care. And, and I don't feel like that's such a high bar. We have a lot of improving to do just in, gen, in medical care in general. But if we could just get gender-affirming care up to the same level as everything else, then I think that's a reasonable expectation. I like that. Yes. <laughs> and I think you can do that. So where can people learn more about the Center for Transgender Medicine and Surgery and what you and kind of your colleagues here at Sinai are actually working on? Well, I invite people to Google us, check our website. If, there, if, it's, if the purpose is to send patients, whatever the topic within gender-affirming care might be, we should be offering it. If we're not offering it, we will offer it. And so people should be able to reach out to us for help with their patients. And we can support providers on the outside just simply giving them guidance for their own patients. We can actually do the interventions, maybe if it's more specialized, whether it's a little bit of help with hormones or help with some surgeries or doing the most sophisticated of the surgeries like the general reconstruction surgeries. I think most of that is just, mostly you'll find us online right through Mount Sinai. Again, like I say, if you just, I think a Google search is the fastest way to get there. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Josh, for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been my pleasure, Tony. Thank you for tuning in. Join us next time for a new episode of Conversations with CEI. Visit us at ceitraining.org and follow us on CEI social media platforms.